Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat sermon by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney. I was raised on Gershwin and on show tunes. Our piano bench was stuffed full of musical scores from Porgy and Bess and Sunset Boulevard and Sondheim and Bernstein and probably a few pieces that weren't written by Jews. The stereo system in our living room was housed in a piece of corner furniture that had two wings that swung out from the sides. Each were lined with tapes and later CD jewel cases with jazz and Broadway hits. There was a small but robust Christian community theater group that put on three shows a summer, staged in the amphitheater on top of Mount Helix, minutes from our home. Then it was a considerably huge deal when my parents took me to my very first touring show, all the way up in Los Angeles. We saw Beauty and the Beast, starring Paige Davis as Babette, long before her TLC Trading Spaces days. Remember that show? My second touring show was Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, starring Michael Damien, and I did not stop listening to that album on repeat for more than half a decade. I would twirl and belt my way across the living room, and I always imagined myself in the enviable role of narrator, no dancing required. In my public school's talent show, it must have been the second grade, I sat in the spotlight, my legs dangling off stage, singing the prologue. We all dream a lot, some are lucky, some are not, but if you think it, want it, dream it, then it's real. You are what you feel. You are what you feel. This is how Andrew Lloyd Webber framed the Joseph narrative, that we are the dreamy protagonists of our own stories, that our stories are written through our dreams. Many years later in seminary, I took a course at the non-denominational sister seminary across the street, the Union Theological Seminary, UTS, up on the third floor of this castle-like building. It really looks like Hogwarts inside. We studied the theology of Job, and we were encouraged to explore the world of theologies from other traditions, ones that departed from our native conception of God's role in the world. I picked a book by Tanya Lerman, T.M. Lerman, an American anthropologist who studied and studies evangelical Christian communities and their evolutions. Her book, her most recent book, is titled When God Talks Back, 
And it is, among other things, an excursus into the world of the prosperity gospel. The notion that God's will is our success, and we can achieve financial and physical well-being through prayer and material devotion to our own spiritual communities. This concept hinges on a personal familiarity with God that resonates deeply with my own Jewish sensibility as a biblical reader. Lerman theorizes that moderns who experience God conversationally, people who talk to God and hear God's voice speaking back, are doing so by means of a willful subversion of theory of mind. We are all born into a baby consciousness that has us believing that the thoughts in our head are the very same thoughts in everyone else's heads around us. They feel what we feel. As we grow in age, we cross a critical mental milestone where we finally conceive of our own thoughts as existing only in our minds until expressed. At some point, it's quite the revelation that what you're thinking is not what I'm thinking. And what I'm thinking is not what you're thinking. And when I, as a young person, embrace that concept, I now have the building blocks of empathy. Because before I learn to care about your feelings, I must understand that your mind and emotional state are completely distinct from my own. When Tanya Lerman met with Christians who described intimate conversations with God, she reflected the following. The task of becoming a Christian demands that one set out deliberately to overcome this fundamental human awareness that our minds are private. She calls this participatory theory of mind, wherein the devotee conceives of their mind as porous. For these individuals, God has access to their thoughts and is present within them. Many of them describe it as sitting down and literally pouring a cup of coffee for themselves and another across the table for God as they share what's in their heart and what they need, and they ask God for what they want. It's easy for me to balk at the conviction of those who adhere to a prosperity gospel that if they do good and if they do right and if they ask, they'll be blessed with the material requests they make of the Holy One. And indeed, there are many reasons to be wary of the predatory nature of religious communities that focus on the acquisition of big, shiny things. But we too are a religion of askers, of requesters, of ones in need who pray for healing and help and action. So rather, I'll focus on my curiosity about the nature of will and of human free will in a world where one prays directly to God to bring them the things that they most want and need. Here we are in the Torah at a point in a Joseph story where we've watched the most beloved son of Jacob fall downward again and again. 
even when the narrative voice of the Torah tells us explicitly that God was with him. God was with Joseph. Joseph's dream reporting led to jealousy in his family. His father's gift of a coat induced a scheme to kill him that later turned to a story of slavery. Joseph was wrongfully accused of sexual assault and jailed. And even when his dream interpretation served as a pastorally healing salve for fellow inmate while incarcerated, he was forgotten. The text insists that God was there, but we watch Joseph suffer. Is he meant to suffer? He asked for what he wanted from God, but he didn't get it. Is God distracted, absent, uncaring? Here in this Parsha, we are finally present with a relatively redeemed Joseph. A Joseph in a position of power, finally. And we as readers, and he as a figure, as a man, as a character, might say that he's in that position despite God. It would be so easy to say that. When Joseph reveals himself to his brother, Quietly, in a hesitant whisper, pulling them aside, it's quite the opposite. And he seems insistent on a dissuasion of any of his brother's guilt. Don't be distressed. Or reproach yourselves because you sold me like this. It was to save life that God sent me ahead of you. My humane read of this verse is that Joseph refuses to give any power to his abusive brothers in this moment. He would prefer to give credit for his fate to God And this is a fate that now has him in a position of authority. But for years hence, it's had him suffering. I mean, really and truly suffering. The Rambam, Maimonides, he uses Joseph's lengthy chronicle in his explanation of free will in the guide for the perplexed. He writes that it is God who gave will to dumb animals, free will to the human being, and natural properties to everything. And all of these examples of will, of which God is the ultimate source, are present in Joseph's story. For example, Rambam says, when Psalm 105 speaks of an angel that comes and looses him, that's a reference to Joseph being freed from prison as a matter of man's will when he is remembered by the cupbearer. But events that are evidently due to chance that cannot be ascribed to any of the three above forces, says Rambam, those are ascribed directly to God. What's his example of this? God sent me before you. Faith is the attribution of inexplicable circumstances to the plan of the Holy One. When we relinquish a sense of control, or at least complete control over our circumstances, our relationship with God necessarily shifts. 
we might still engage with prayerful requests for circumstantial and material changes in our lives, but more so our requests resound with pleas for the strength to respond in the best and most sacred and righteous ways to the circumstances that arise. Joseph is so close to his own story, as we all are, as we witness him crying out to his brothers from within a wrenchingly emotional moment, that he may very well believe with a full heart that his suffering was all part of God's intentional plan. But we, as readers... As Jews who learn from this text not only the story of our people, but also draw from it lessons on how to live and act and do, we are watching Joseph respond to an opportunity for closure in facing his brothers with positivity and faith and grace. Jacob sees this too. His father sees this too. The 16th and 17th century commentator, the Shneiluchot Abrit, writes about the moment when Jacob is physically reunited with Joseph. As soon as Jacob looked at Joseph's face, he expressed willingness to die. The Torah phrases this peculiarly when it writes, After I have seen that you are alive. Vayomer Yisrael el Yosef amutahapam. Then Israel said to Joseph, Now I can die, having seen for myself that you are alive. At first glance, says the Shneiluchotabrit, that you are alive, it seems superfluous. Jacob indicated by his words that being alive in itself was quite meaningless, unless Joseph had remained loyal to his father's teachings. Joseph's face reflected God's approval, meaning God made Joseph's face light up. So what is it that Jacob saw in Joseph in that moment of reunion that secured Jacob's hope that his legacy was in steady hands? The Shneiluchot Abrit continues with a beautiful teaching about the way in which Joseph held himself in that moment and throughout his journey. He says, we are charged by the Torah to appear in the temple three times a year. The commandment appears in such a way that it caused our sages in Chagigah, in the Bavli, 2a, to say that the word Yud Reish Aleph He can be read both passively or actively, as in to be seen or to see. Yira or Yira'eh. Their message is that if one comes to the temple with a positive attitude, meaning in order to see God, then one will also be positively seen by God. And on this comes a hint at the way to live. In the way that you come to see, so you will come to be seen. Jacob saw in Joseph what his tremendous faith in his dreams, in his fate, and most of all in God had done for him. Joseph had every reason to have lost the will to believe, to claim his identity as an Israelite along the way. And here was Joseph at this juncture, so certain 
that even after all this suffering, it was God who was responsible for his deliverance and for putting him in a powerful enough position to protect his family. And as Joseph saw the world and saw God, so too would he be seen. In a Rambamian way, in a Maimonidean way, we either have very little or a tremendous amount of control over our circumstances at any given time. But we have the utmost control over the way in which we respond to our circumstances and approach each moment, each day, each situation in which we find ourselves. Just this week, I listened to Bella Cap recall the memory of her dear father, Irving Skolnick, Zichrono Livracha, whom we miss so dearly this Shabbat, as she spoke of his attitude regarding parties. She said that he would say, if you go in thinking you're going to have a good time, you're going to have a good time. This is a radically approachable twist on a prosperity gospel. Kiderich shabalirot kach balirot. In the way you choose to see a situation, so you will experience or be seen in that situation. So, dear Andrew Lloyd Webber, if you think it, want it, dream it, I cannot guarantee, no one can guarantee that it will be real or that it will come to fruition. But you are indeed what you feel. It is the way in which we approach and hold ourselves in our circumstances that defines our character. We do not hold our entire fate in our own hands, but we are the designers of our impression upon the world and its impression upon us. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.